Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Today's episode, called Unlocking the Mysteries of Congenital Heart Defects, looks at the genetics involved with congenital heart defects and gives us a sneak peek into how genetics is evolving as a field and what members of the congenital heart defect community can learn from new research. It also gives us hope that someday we may know and maybe even be able to prevent heart defects before they occur. Sit back and enjoy today's encore presentation, Unlocking the Mysteries of Congenital Heart Defects. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the fourth season of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is Tales from the Trenches, and today I have a very distinguished guest. When a family is told their baby is going to be born with a heart defect or a child is diagnosed after birth, usually the first question that pops into a parent's mind is, did I do something to cause this? Mothers grapple with the idea that perhaps they did something wrong during the pregnancy. Eventually, both father and mother might wonder if their genes are to blame. According to Genetics Home Reference, critical congenital heart defect is usually isolated, which means it occurs alone without signs of symptoms affecting other parts of the body. However, the heart defects associated with critical congenital heart defect can also occur as part of genetic syndromes that have additional features. Some of these genetic conditions, such as Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, and 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, result from changes in the number or structure of particular chromosomes. Other conditions, including Noonan syndrome, result from mutations in single genes. I know that long QT syndrome also has a genetic component, but are genes more responsible for congenital heart defects than previously believed? Today's show is entitled Dr. Woody Benson, Unlocking the Mysteries of Congenital Heart Defects, and our guest is Dr. Woodrow Benson. Dr. Benson, Professor of Pediatrics and Director of Pediatric Cardiac Research at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Medical College of Wisconsin, attended medical and graduate school at Emory University. He obtained a Ph.D. in Biomathematics and Biomedical Engineering at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and an M.D. from Duke University. Pediatric residency and cardiology fellowships were completed at Duke Medical Center. Early in his career, he pursued interest in cardiac electrophysiology and introduced this discipline to pediatric cardiology. In 1986, he became Director of Cardiology at Children's Memorial Hospital, Northwestern University. In mid-career, under the auspices of a National Institute of Health Senior Fellowship, he trained to become an investigator in the molecular genetics of pediatric heart disease, 
subsequently pursuing patient-oriented genetic research. Dr. Benson's investigations identified the role of mutations in pediatric heart disease and established bicuspid aortic valve as a complex genetic disorder. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Benson. Well, good morning. It's so nice to be able to join you. I'm so happy to have you back. Some of my longtime listeners may remember you from Season 1 when you kindly came on Episode 5 to discuss the genetics of congenital heart defects. But I'm so excited to have you on today so we can talk about some of the changes that you've seen regarding the role genetics plays in congenital heart defects. I know that things have changed over time, especially since 20 years ago when my son's heart defect was first diagnosed. At that time, I was told that congenital heart defects were a fluke of nature. Can you tell us if that is still the prevailing thought regarding congenital heart defects? Well, I think there's been, over the past couple of decades, there's really been a major transition in thinking about what causes congenital heart defects, and early on, there was a bias toward thinking that these were due to environmental factors or maybe issues related to the mother's lifestyle. But I think with our findings in the past 15 years that we've really sort of come full circle to think that the underpinnings are almost totally genetic. It's not to say that environment doesn't play some role, but really it's largely genetic. And I think what we're faced with now is new technology that makes it much easier to address questions like this. And I think this is going to change the conversation in the field in the coming years. I think so, too. I think we're already seeing some of those changes, don't you? Yes. I think in the past five to ten years, there's really been an explosion of clinically available genetic testing. When when you were a new mother dealing with the baby with the heart defect, maybe the only genetic test that was available to you was a cytogenetic test or chromosome analysis. I think now the testing is much more specific and focused. Of course, the downside of having more information is the challenge for physicians to learn how to interpret it and incorporate it into their decision-making. Right. It seems like there's so much for doctors to know nowadays. You almost have to specialize, don't you? Well, you do, but I think even that often isn't enough just because if you look at sort of the explosion in information about genetics, the physicians who are already out of medical school who formally completed their training aren't really prepared for this. So they have a big task of how to learn this on the job. And I think it's a situation where a lot of times it's the parents who are highly motivated to know because as you recounted your experiences as a mother wondering what caused this, and I think for many parents often this is one of the most important questions. So I think parents are always looking for this kind of information in the news, whereas physicians who were brought up in old school to think, well, it's not genetics, they're not as motivated to learn it. So I think it really is a challenge. Mm -hmm. 
I think so, too. Well, I've been fascinated to read some of your research in the past, especially since it seems so very important to our understanding of congenital heart defects, what possibly causes them, and more importantly, how we can stop them from occurring altogether. Unfortunately, congenital heart defects cover so many different defects, it's outside the scope of one single show to talk about, but we can focus just on one that's one of your passions, and that is bicuspid aortic valve. Can you tell us what you've discovered about bicuspid aortic valve and how your discoveries might pertain to my listeners? Sure. I love to talk about this problem. Bicuspid aortic valve describes a heart malformation where the aortic valve, which is one of the four heart valves, has two cusps rather than three. So normally the valve has three, and if you have a bicuspid valve, there are two. And for most people, the valve works just fine with two cusps. In fact, many people that have a bicuspid aortic valve aren't aware that they have it until they have a cardiac echo test, an ultrasound test Mm -hmm. of the heart. That's really become the gold standard. So I think what intrigued me about this is that it is the most common heart malformation in humans, and it affects almost 2% of the population. The other thing that makes it important is that even though most people that have it, it's not really of any consequence, and you can live a long, healthy, productive life with no disability, for some people... It is the precursor of aortic valve disease. So this is where the valve ceases to work properly. And, in fact, aortic valve disease is a fairly common problem. In the United States, there are about 100,000 people a year that undergo replacement of the aortic valve. 100,000 a year. year. So that makes it the second most common heart operation. So those were the things, the fact that it's common, Mm -hmm. that it definitely is a risk factor for a significant problem, and then also thinking about how we would use modern genetics to approach this problem, the fact that it clustered in families. So if you have a relative with a bicuspid aortic valve, your chance of having a bicuspid aortic valve is higher than, say, your next-door neighbor who doesn't have anybody in the family with a bicuspid aortic valve. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is important for us to know. I don't know if you've read Robbie Benson's memoir, but he actually wrote about this. His book is called I'm Not Dead Yet, and he was born with a bicuspid aortic valve, and like you said, oh. he didn't know. He didn't know what the problem was for a long time. He would just get short of breath, and I haven't quite finished it, but we'll be having a review of the book in my newsletter. My husband finished reading it, and he actually wrote the review for us. But yes, he had a bicuspid aortic valve, and just like you said, as an adult, he has had open-heart surgery to replace that valve, not once, but more than once, and it has caused him significant problems. It's nice to see that somebody who's a public figure, like Robbie Benson, is willing to talk about it because it's definitely affected his quality of life, and I think that's one of the things that our our listeners need to know. First of all, it is the most common congenital heart defect, and yet the American Heart Association doesn't list it in their list of congenital heart defects, which totally has me baffled. But then also that so many people don't recognize what they're experiencing is a heart problem. They might think it's asthma. They might think that it's just chronic fatigue syndrome or something else. And we're lucky that today we do have the technology to test people, but how can people know if this is what their problem is 
when, you know, like for Robbie Benson, he had been an athlete most of his life. He sure didn't sure. think that he had a heart problem, and he doesn't talk in his book about any family members having a heart problem. So how would you know? Well, uh, so I guess there there would be several clues. One, I think if you are having symptoms that are suggestive of heart disease, you mentioned shortness of breath, lack of stamina, easy fatigability, mm-hmm. that I think one of the blessings of modern medicine is the ultrasound. It's a non-invasive test. You can have it in an outpatient setting. And so I think this is one where if you have some reason to be concerned about whether you have a vacuous aortic valve or not, an echocardiogram would be the best way to answer that question. I think mm-hmm. things that might come up to make you wonder about this possibility, in addition to the symptoms that you had mentioned, is family history. And mm-hmm. I think studies show that everybody thinks family history is important, but most people don't know their family history uh, in great detail. In Mm -hmm. fact, this is such a problem that the Surgeon General of the United States has recommended that Thanksgiving Day be labeled National Family History Day. Now, this may conjure up funny images of people sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table gorging themselves on this huge feast and talking about <laughs> Uncle Joe's kidney problems and the blood pressure of Aunt Sally and those things. It's not what we normally talk about. But I think if there's someone in your family that has a history of valve surgery, most likely it's aortic valve. That's the most common valve to get operated on. And I think if you hear something like that, it's probably worth digging a little deeper and trying to get to it. And I think as often the case, parents who first learn about bicuspid aortic valve are more concerned about their children than they are about themselves. So they would be more likely to bring their children in than before they would go to the cardiologist. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, I took my son. (laughs) I was so worried about Joey, even though he was an athlete. I was so afraid that maybe he had a hidden heart defect because his brother has Uh a left-sided heart defect. And the research that I was investigating showed that a disproportionate percentage of people who had a left-sided heart defect in the family had first and second degree relatives who also had a heart defect, even though it might be something minor, like bicuspid, what they considered minor, bicuspid aortic valve. And so I had Joey, my older son, who is heart healthy, do an athlete screening, and they did an echo. At that time, I didn't recognize the importance of bicuspid aortic valve as much as I do now, (laughs) but I was very concerned that maybe there would be something wrong with him. And so when they did the screening for him, the athletic screening, I told them all about my son with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and we looked extensively at the aorta. We didn't look at the valves. I remember us looking to make sure that the structures of the vessels were all good. The aorta didn't have a kink in it, even though Alex was born with a coarctation, and I cried afterwards, Dr. Benson. When we got to the parking lot, I made it all the way to the parking lot before I burst into tears, just with relief that there wasn't something major structurally wrong with Joey that I didn't know about. How often, in your experience, has it happened that a family with a baby with a critical congenital heart defect, especially a left-sided one like hypoplastic left heart syndrome, might find out later that another relative that's close to that child also has a heart defect? Well, it happens actually in some of our research studies. We've asked people questions and then we've 
offered to do an echocardiogram as part of our research, so I think we know with some precision. But I think if you're the only person in the family that has a heart defect, it's less likely that other people would be effective. But if you have, let's say, a child with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and a parent who has a bicuspidaritic valve, then the risk for subsequent children goes up from just a few percent chance up to 20 or 25 percent chance. So I think it's little details that really turn out to be important. I think just Mm -hmm. to follow up your thought about the peace of mind, that in, in my opinion, my experience, one of the most important uses of echocardiography, ultrasound of the heart, is really the peace of mind because Mm -hmm. I think if your echocardiogram is normal or your child's echocardiogram is normal, I think that's a great relief and it's probably something in that case you only need to have done once, but it's a great, great peace of mind. I know. I realized when I got back to the car that... Yeah, and Joey didn't understand why I was crying. <laughs> he was like, Mom, I'm okay. And I said, I know. I'm just so thankful that everything's okay. Sure. And I thought, if I had known that sense of relief that I had, I don't even really think I acknowledged how worried I was about him. Because ever since Alex was diagnosed, I asked the pediatrician, do we need to have Joey tested? And because Joey had no symptoms whatsoever, the pediatrician could never justify having sure. Joey go through any additional tests. But had I known how much that worried me for so many years, for over a decade, I think I would have paid to have the test done myself. (laughs) I just really didn't have any clue. But we are late for a commercial, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about what Dr. Benson has found out about hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the genetics involved with that. So we'll be back in just a moment. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Today's show is entitled Dr. Woody Benson, Unlocking the Mysteries of Congenital Heart Defects, and our guest is Dr. Woody Benson. We just finished talking to Dr. Benson about the research that he has done with bicuspid aortic valve, and we started to talk about hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and we're going to continue talking about that just a little bit more. So, Dr. Benson, can you tell us why you chose to study the genetics of HLHS, or hypoplastic left heart syndrome? And you started telling us a little bit of information, but I have a feeling you have a lot more to share. Well, I think what intrigued me about it is in our discipline, it's one of the more serious heart malformations, serious because a surgery is required early in infancy, and unfortunately, it's a condition where a single operation isn't sufficient, and usually people have a series of stage operations that go on over the first years of life. So I think for those reasons, it's a very important problem. 
I think mm-hmm. the other thing, again, thinking about it from the standpoint of genetic research, the the fact that this was a problem that's known to recur in families, and not only do other family members have hypoplastic left heart syndrome, but they also are at risk of having other heart malformations, and the most common one is bicuspid aortic valve, which is what we were just talking about earlier in the show. So I think these things have been known for decades to be linked together, and we didn't really know why. So it seemed to me that using the tools that modern genetic research has made available, that it would be possible to approach this problem and gain insight into what caused it. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating. The more we learn, the more we see these connections, don't you think? Oh, yes. And I think in terms of it may not be apparent why it's important to know the cause because right now in our field, our approach to these problems is to use surgical techniques, marvelous surgical techniques. And this is another field where the technology has just been amazing in the past several decades. But basically the strategy and the surgery is to reroute the blood in the heart so that the red blood goes to the right place and the blue blood goes to the right place. And that's very technically challenging and results are frankly amazing. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that that approach doesn't really address what caused this problem in the first place. Right, right. It it doesn't address the underlying problem. Right. And so I think the other thing where this becomes important is that the surgeons and the cardiologists and the intensivists spend their careers attentive to detail, making sure that they do everything correctly according to protocol so that they can get good results. And we do get good results most of the time, but sometimes we don't. And so I think people want to understand Why didn't things work out the way we anticipated? Can we learn something that would help us the next time this comes up? Mm -hmm. And I think thinking about it from a genetic standpoint, I think it's likely that if we know the cause, that this will help us predict some what the outcome is going to be, that we should be able to know before we start who is likely to get the most benefit and who may not get as much benefit as we thought. If we know that, then we could focus mm-hmm. on the ones where we're not getting the good outcomes to see if we can make improvements. So do you think that genetic engineering is in our future where you and I will actually see that perhaps something can be done at the genetic level to maybe even reverse some of these conditions? Well, it's been a dream ever since, you know, there's a common childhood malady, cystic fibrosis, that mm-hmm. has very strong genetic underpinnings. And the gene for cystic fibrosis was found 25 years ago, over 25 years ago. And early on, people said, oh, well, great, now that we know the gene, we can correct the genetic defect. And there's been a lot of effort put into doing that. But nobody's been able to reverse the genetic defect. So that, at first glance, might sound like a disappointment, but I think the thing that everyone in that field agrees to is that knowing the genetic cause has led to great improvements in the care of the patients. So now, in 2015, 
we can say patients with cystic fibrosis live longer and have a better quality of life because we understand what caused the problems, and this has guided us in our treatment. So even though we don't have a gene cure, we've had a very positive impact on the patients. So I would say borrowing from that experience, of course, it would be great to have a genetic cure, but I think based on experience in other fields, if we know what causes the problems, that this will give us a new way to think about it and will offer us more solutions, how to understand what to offer when things don't go the way we expected they would. Wow. It's almost (laughs) mind-blowing to think about how far we've come in just a couple of decades and the significance of genetics, not only, as you're stating here with cystic fibrosis, not only in the heart realm, but in other realms as well, and what we can learn from the genetic research that has been done. Well, we need to take another quick commercial break, but don't leave yet, because when we come back, we'll have Dr. Benson tell us some advice, some parting advice before we leave. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna. Today's show is entitled Dr. Woody Benson, Unlocking the Mysteries of Congenital Heart Defects, and we have had the most fascinating conversation about what we have learned about genetics in the last couple of decades. And Dr. Benson, I want to thank you one more time for coming on the show. This has been an amazing show. Well, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it, too. Well, I hate to have to end the show, but we only have a couple minutes left, and so I guess one of my most important questions is, what is the best advice that you could offer adults born with congenital heart defects regarding better understanding their heart defects and the possibility of them passing their CHD on to their children? Well, I think it's a very good question, and it sort of takes us back to the beginning in terms of, I think for most families, one of the most important questions patients and families, one of the most important questions is, why did this happen and what's the risk that it might happen again or something similar to it might happen again? And I think really the genetics genie is out of the bottle. We don't have all the questions answered, and certainly I think every year there are new genetic tests that become available, and I think even for physicians it's kind of daunting learning how to use them responsibly and in an informative kind of way. So I guess I would say first, stay tuned because it is changing. And I think nowadays you'll find that at many centers that care for children with congenital heart defects that there are geneticists working with the cardiologist. And Mm -hmm. so I think this provides an opportunity to talk with a genetic professional, either a geneticist or a genetic counselor, about these kind of questions, and they can give you kind of an update on what's available for the specific heart defect that your child may have. I think the important thing to emphasize is that it's an area where the pace of change in the technology is very fast, 
People may be aware of the Human Genome Project. This was a project sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, and I think this has really revealed many mysteries to us about the human genome and how we should interpret findings in patients with heart malformations. So I think it's definitely something that it's changing. You'll hear more about it, and there probably are a lot of situations where for specific types of heart defects, there may be a genetic test that's already available that was a known entity that gives good results, and families may find it very reassuring to know these results. Well, thank you so much. That's a very thorough answer, and I guess... Really, then, if you're born with a congenital heart defect and you're now considering getting married or having your own children, that would be the best time to bring it up with your pediatric cardiologist if you're worried about passing it on to your children. And otherwise, stay tuned, like you said, and hopefully your pediatric cardiologist or if you're not with a pediatric cardiologist, your cardiologist working with adults with congenital heart defects will be able to let you know when there's something available to help us understand what each of us has. <laughs> I guess that's the only way that we can look at it. But I feel like so many people, and Alex is included in this, they're, these people who have made it to their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they're kind of like the pioneers. They're the ones that we're learning from, and they're the ones who are helping us to understand all of these mysteries a little better. Don't you think, Dr. Ben? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thank you so much for listening today. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook. Check out our website, hearttoheartwithanna.com. Purchase something from our Cafe Press Boutique to help defray the cost of our show. And please follow our radio show on Blog Talk Radio and Spreaker. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. Music.